Hello katawan toki rekamlo Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Mi Koroi Hawkins. Coming up. We just need to really come together as a nation and, and help each other through this. New ends adjusting to a new normal after the detection of their first case of COVID-19. To remove a large chunk of more than 10 years of institutional knowledge from MTV News would be disastrous for an election period. Papua New Guinea's largest broadcaster sacks core new staff just months out from a national election. And we conclude this week's Talanoa series on Australia and New Zealand spy operations in the Pacific. There is a moral and ethical breach which goes beyond just the legal question to the uh, morality of what we do. Authorities on Niue believe the very high vaccination rate will protect the nation from any potential COVID spread. After two years COVID-free, the small island nation has recorded its first case of the virus in a traveller from New Zealand. That person is now in quarantine along with 26 other passengers who were on board the plane. RNZ Pacific's Elisha Foon has the latest. For two years, New Air has been in its own bubble of the Pacific, sheltered from the virus which has plagued the rest of the world. Now COVID-19 is on the country's shores in border isolation. Premier Dalton Tangilangi assured the people of New Air that health officials and the government have been preparing for this moment. The case is currently in quarantine and will be monitored closely by the health officials. The case is double vaccinated and boosted uh, and had returned a negative uh, PCR test and rats prior to uh, boarding the flight from Auckland, New Zealand. New Air, which has a population of just under 2,000 people, has been well ahead of the game in some respects, vaccinating 97% of its eligible population last year. High Commissioner for New Air in New Zealand, Fisa Pinya, says he's pleased the country is well protected by high dosage rates. I'm not surprised that it's uh, finally get to New Air, but yes, New Air has been prepared. No, I don't think there will be any drastic changes, but uh, we still had to follow protocol that's been put in place for travellers going to Newey. And uh, because Newey was looking as opening the uh, the restriction of, uh, you know, isolation, looking at uh, next month, which is April. But uh, now with this happening, uh, the government will probably has to re-look at uh, the review their their settings. The Premier says people need to remain calm and work together. Our extremely high uh, vaccination rate um, it's another factor in our favour uh, as it slows the spread of transmission and also reduces um, the health impacts. New Air Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Catherine Etuata Papani says it's crucial the government keep up timely communication and give people a heads up with developments. It has really taken, I think, um, a lot of businesses back to really look at their operations. Um, we see today out and about um, a lot of people are starting to wear masks. We see the sanitizers out in areas. We're trying to also at the same time push our businesses to start using that rock safe just to get themselves used to it. We just need to really come together as a nation and, and help each other through this. And between the government and um, private sector, we need to do this together. Meanwhile, across the rest of the Pacific, the COVID-19 spread seems to be slowing. 
There are 160 active cases in Cook Islands. American Samoa has more than 200 cases. Fiji has 107, while Vanuatu has 83. New Caledonia has recorded 430 new cases and two new deaths. Lockdown restrictions also eased in Tonga, which now has 854 active cases. In French Polynesia, the total number of active cases is 1,420. There are just eight other countries that have not reported any COVID-19 cases, most of them in the Pacific, including Tuvalu, Tokela, Pitcairn Islands, Nauru and Federated States of Micronesia. Sincha Dimara, the News and Current Affairs Manager at MTV in Papua New Guinea, has been sacked after weeks of being suspended. Ms Dimara, one of the longest-serving journalists in Papua New Guinea and at MTV for 30 years, was accused of insubordination and damaging the reputation of the company for running a series of news reports concerning a controversial Australian businessman operating in PNG. When she was suspended, 24 other new staff walked off the job in support. They were later sacked. Another veteran PNG journalist, Scott Wyde, worked alongside Ms. Demara for years. He explained to Don Wiseman what has happened and what the ramifications are with an election due in a few months' time. So she was given a termination letter uh, yesterday, and that letter stated that she was being terminated for insubordination and that was the same reason given about a month ago uh, when she was suspended. So she was suspended for 21 days without pay. Uh, Her suspension was extended by another 14 days I think and later when the suspension period ended which was yesterday she was given her termination notice. Now the reason for that was due to editorial decisions made in relation to Jamie Pang's story on the sports segment of MTV News. So she was given uh, instructions not to air anything related to Jamie Pang, and uh, a few stories ran on on the sports segment. It was about Jamie Pang's activities, uh, his gymnasium, his staff talking about Pang himself uh, and the work that he did. Okay, and Jamie Pang, there's... There are some issues about him at this point, and that's why the management... Um, yes, he's been charged with uh, drug offences and and firearm offences. So that was why, uh, I guess, MTV management didn't like the fact that it was being... Uh, airtime was given to Pang. Could it be justified, the Pang stories? Were, were they newsworthy? The internal decisions, I'm not, too, I'm not privy to them, but Sincha did, did give a detailed response to the management, to the chief executive, uh, and that led to uh, her eventual suspension. So she felt fully justified in running these stories. As you say, this chap hasn't been yes. convicted of these, uh, these charges. So yes. all of the events in terms of the, the, the multiple suspensions of others, that was related to the same material, was it? Sincha was suspended and the staff sent in an appeal calling for her reinstatement because they felt that the independence of the newsroom had been compromised, that uh, influences 
from the outside had triggered that decision to suspend us. They felt that it wasn't an independent decision from the MTV chief executive. So that all led to a, a petition being given to the chief executive. Those concerns that were contained in the petition were never really addressed according to the staff. And they also felt that, you know, within the two weeks after Sincha was suspended, they felt bullied and intimidated and micromanaged to a point where it became very difficult for them to work. So they made a decision to walk off um, and they were subsequently suspended. It took about two weeks before they were suspended. They lodged an appeal. They appealed the suspension and when they presented that appeal, they were terminated 15 minutes later. Sincha's a veteran journalist. She's a well-decorated journalist. What's the reaction within the journalism community in PNG? Well, you know, Sincha's has a large network of friends and colleagues all over the world, to the U.S. and the Pacific and Asia as well. So she's fairly well known. She remains in the background mostly, you know. She, she doesn't like the attention. But Facebook page, she's always been backbone of news productions, live news productions, and, you know, outside broadcasts that have happened, driven by the news team. She's been behind every major award that the news team has won, either in PNG or overseas, never want to take credit for herself. So I guess the reaction has been one of, for many of the staff, one of disgust that she was treated this way, very undignified, and just dumped after 35 years of service. What do you want to see happen? Well, ideally, I would have liked to see some dialogue, because, I mean, I guess she was, she expected this to happen at some stage, so uh, she was trying to negotiate the reinstatement of the 24 staff that were sacked uh, because they stood up. And she was expecting a termination or something like that, some heavier penalty after a suspension. So she was saying, you know, even if they sack me, that's fine, but the 24 staff have to go back to work because we have an election to cover in June. And to remove a large chunk of more than 10 years of institutional knowledge from MTV News would be disastrous for an election period. So that was her main concern. And finally, we conclude our Talanoa series on Australian and New Zealand spy operations in the Pacific this week with Papua New Guinean lawyer and academic Mao Kama, who we started speaking to in yesterday's Pacific Waves. Earlier in the week, we heard from the Victoria University Professor of Comparative Politics, John Frankel, as well as two separate statements from Intelligence Minister Andrew Little and Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta. We've yet to get a response from the Australian government to the allegations laid out by investigative journalist Nikki Haga in his latest article, Eyes Over the Pacific, and with whom we kicked off this whole conversation last week. Hopefully we'll be able to bring to you the views of some of our Pacific Island leaders as well in the coming days and their thoughts on being spied on. But for today we pick up our conversation with Papua New Guinean lawyer and academic Dr. Bao Kama, a visiting fellow at the Australian National University who specialises in Pacific affairs and legal systems. I asked Dr. Kama if based on the responses from the New Zealand government so far, not denying any of the allegations, but restating the importance of the intelligence work in the region in helping to maintain a peaceful, stable and secure Pacific, if Pacific countries are just supposed to accept on face value that their big brother and sister, so to speak, Australia and New Zealand, have their best interests at heart. When the Pacific countries decided to be independent, to sort of 
decolonialize themselves. They wanted to be self-governing in all, in all aspect. And so any sort of notion that we have big, you know, they are big, big brothers out there looking over the shoulders, I think uh, that has to be narrowly defined so as not to suggest that it is part of a neocolonialism. To what extent the big brother, as they may perceive to be, should act within the Pacific domain needs to be defined as well, needs to be clearly articulated, not just a word that is put it out there. Because by doing so, undermine the capacity, the sovereignty, and the independence of the Pacific state. And I think that needs to come out clearly. The other aspect of it is that because we are connected, although that sense of sovereignty and independence is there, because the region is so connected uh, and the threat levels, are, you know, once they affect on another may impact on the other and then uh, those sort of ripple effect makes those uh, Australia, New Zealand, who have the capacity, who have the economic power, the military power as well, to be feeling that there is a natural responsibility uh, as a country with that capacity to not stand ideal, but respond. The international power dynamic is also shaped in a way that makes them responsible. Um, how do I, or what do I mean by that? I think uh, if, if something happens within the region, there is an expectation internationally that the two leading countries would, would, would have these things under control. So before international uh, countries or partners decide to step into the region, they will be, for instance, ensuring that Australia and New Zealand are okay with it. You know, they are, whether they need, they need help to uh, extra, extra help or not. We see that in Bougainville, we see that in Solomon Islands. Um, the first preference of international court always goes to the near neighbors who have the power and the capacity and the willingness to step in. So in some ways, um, like you said, you know, it's uh, the size of the Pacific and its state inherently puts it in a, in a position where there are things that it can't do it on itself without sufficient help from the two strong neighbors. And I don't think that is a kind of a perpetual or forever sort of dependence. It, it is just that the way the region has been, as it is, small island states, bigger developed economies uh, will inherently give rise to some sort of dependency that will make sure that those small island states are effective in dealing with what they are dealing with. That said, though, I think uh, one needs to be cautious in that it, 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 it doesn't mean that Australia and New Zealand setting the agendas for the, for the Pacific states. And so when, that, when there are times where things like this or narratives like that are coming up, you will see Pacific Island leaders are pushing back because it is easy to, at, uh, on one hand, think that, yes, Pacific Island states are in, inherently going to be de dependent on they're two bigger uh, nations and then forget about the, I mean, and then easily slide into this area where they set the agenda of, of, of how things should operate. And I think that is where Pacific leaders needs to really be clear on, recognizing that there are things that you need their help just because they are big and, and, and they have that power to assist. And there are things that you need to set 
uh, boundary and, and be cautious of and actually sustain it, sustain the narrative, sustain that level of cautionary. Definitely. Like, I, I think the, a parallel I can draw is when with Ramsey, when Ramsey was in Solomon, some of the Australians themselves who were part of Ramsey were critical of some of the behavior of people coming through the mission. And uh, I think the, the phrase was, don't treat it like a suburb of Sydney or, or uh, saying that, you know, like you are here to help, but that doesn't mean that you're, you're being needed makes you the, the superior authority or mm. whatever. So I guess that segues into like, my other question was, what, what are the legal issues here? Like, is this, where does, where does the law come in, in terms of what a foreign nation is able to do? Like, I guess it must be, <laughs> must be a really gray area in terms of intelligence gathering, but um, what, what protections do Pacific countries have, if any, uh, on the legal legal side of things before i before i go into answering that that um pertinent question i think i'd like to piggy piggyback on what you pointed out in that example i think that points out one of the ways to mitigate that dependency in that building capacities within the pacific region trusting if you have a crisis somewhere then you want to use the resources within the pacific first people who understand each other people who understand the cultural context and, and, and really make, make use of what help they could provide before you started looking out to, say, you know, Australia or, or New Zealand. And I think, I think we are seeing that happening, for instance, in the Solomon Islands recently, where the government calls on Papua New Guinea, Fiji, um, but obviously Australia was leading. But as you go into the future, you know, you want to look at, say, things like, you know, intervening in, in local conflicts. Is it something that you could tap into the resources that are existing in, in, in the Pacific. Uh, PNG has both military and the, and the police. Uh, Fiji has that as well. They are not perfect. They have their own records that are, that are not to be proud of. But could they construct at the PIF level a um, Pacific regional sort of intervention forces that can go into this kind of areas? Like when it comes to medical, for instance, or any other sort of things that might need help, probably, you know, one of the conversations to, to look at is, is to look at this, how could we build capacity within the Pacific so that Pacific people who understand context and culture can, res, can respond within themselves. Now, I want to bring it back to the question that you've mentioned, the legality of uh, spying or the alleged spying activities. Snowden's document, I mean, it's uh, unless someone has evidence to, to disprove it, you know, it remains a, a very authentic and a, and a strong evidence of things happening. And so the question of legality is a very important one in that, uh, is it legal? The simple answer is no, it is not legal. Uh, and both domestic laws within Australia and New Zealand wouldn't allow that to happen, doesn't allow that to happen. And then also uh, laws within the country that, the alleged spying may have taken place doesn't also allow it to happen. So any continual undertaking in that regard is a continual bridge of rule of law, continual bridge of uh, sovereignty, because the law protects sovereignty. And when you break the law internationally, then you undermine just the sovereignty. And um, much more broadly, it does undermine the international rules-based institution or rules-based understanding that 
every actors within the international space act within guided rules. And so that fundamental understanding that is accepted by democratic states and people within the democracy that every actors are law-abiding actors, uh, such, such an allegation and, 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 and activity um, goes to the very heart of breaching that. Uh, there are sort of exceptions, you know, when you are at uh, war with someone, for instance, which obviously you do want to gain advantage. So the uh, state could use whatever means necessary within its power to kind of defend its interests. But in uh, peacetime, uh, when you are in peacetime and in no conflict, obviously there is a breach. But also I think there is a moral and ethical uh, breach if we can push that line a bit. You know, when you are showing to your neighbors that, you are their friends and you are their family. Then uh, as some Pacific Islander leaders have mentioned before, there is a moral and ethical breach which goes beyond just the legal question to the, to the uh, morality of what we do. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mo me'a.